The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon again. Part two. Um, we had a sheet from last week, which we will bring another copy of next week, which had an outline of the, what the sources said about Jesus and Muhammad. Remember what we're doing here? We're not interested in what Christians say about Muhammad or what Muslims say about Jesus. We're looking at what the earliest Christian sources say, what, what Jesus said and did, and what the earliest Islamic sources, the Quran, the Hadiths, the sayings of the Prophet, and the um, earliest biographies, particularly Ibn Ishaq, uh, who comes through Ibn Hashim. So the question is, can both Christianity and Islam, as outlined by Jesus and Muhammad, both lead us to God? I'd like to start by sharing a fairly simple idea. Uh, it may seem silly when you first hear it, but it's an idea I heard some years ago, and I think the longer I live with it, the truer it seems to be of the facts. And that is that there are basically in the world, in spite of the impressions, two religions... There are only basically two ways in which human beings relate to God. And the two religions are simply entitled, the first one is called the do religion and the second one we'll come to a little later. There are two ways in which people attempt to answer the question asked by Job, whose book is in the Old Testament in the Bible, but who is referred to respectfully in the Quran, asked by Job, chapter 9, verse 2, who puts this question. How can a mortal be declared righteous before God? How can a mortal, one of us, those destined to die, how is it possible for someone like us to be righteous before God? That's a legal term. To be declared righteous means to, be, uh, to go before the judge and to be found righteous rather than unrighteous, innocent rather than guilty, acceptable rather than unacceptable. It is the word Jesus uses in that parable that you heard where he says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified. That is, declared righteous. Now, there are two basic ways humans attempt to do that. Now, there are many, many different forms of human religion, as you know. And there are some ways in which Jesus is more in sync with Buddha than Muhammad. Other ways in which Jesus is more in sync with Buddha, with Muhammad and disagrees with the Buddha. Ways in which Muhammad is more like the Buddha than he is with Jesus. Ways in which Muhammad is more like Jesus than he is. And and we need to uh, be clear, I think, on this, that there are many large areas where Jesus and Muhammad agree. Now, whether or not you think that uh, Islam is a religion that came from God or whether or not religion is a, you know, is a result of Muhammad's travels and experience, we looked last week at his extensive travels and conversations with Jewish people and with various sorts of Christians, but mostly uh, what the great bulk of Christians have, decided, have always believed were heretical. That is, they were like the modern-day equivalent of Jehovah's Witnesses, if you like, in terms of their belief. Some of the areas in which Jesus and Muhammad agree are the greatness of God, the otherness of God, the great creator, unlike any of his creation, the, the problem and reality of sin, human evil, although they have differences. In a sense, the Bible has a much darker view of human sin than uh, Islam does. Both Muhammad and Jesus spoke of and believed in the terrible, serious reality of the Day of Judgment, the great day when we will all stand before God and give an account. And both believe in the reality of heaven and hell, although it is 
certainly true that the Quran says a lot more about hell and many of the descriptions of hell that we think of as you know, uh, various sorts of torture are actually in the Quran, having to drink scalding water and liquid metal and things like that. Uh, so that both of them are quite clear, Jesus and Muhammad, on those things. But there are fundamental differences. When you look at what Jesus says according to the earliest sources and what Muhammad says according to the earliest Islamic sources, they're quite different in a number of ways. Well, let's go back to the two basic religions. Now, uh, the do religion is about what it's fundamentally someone comes, an enlightened person, a prophet, someone comes and gives you a course of action that if you pursue it genuinely and sincerely and with a good heart, it will turn out okay for you in the life to come. Buddhism is clearly that. Uh, the fourfold truths that the Buddha discovers in his moment of enlightenment, which leads to the eightfold path of life which if you live it properly, you will have a better reincarnation. And according to classical Buddhism, a Buddhist-type Buddhism rather than Vaucluse-type Buddhism, um, given hundreds of thousands of reincarnations, you might eventually arrive at non-existence, nirvana. Another, which one is the do religion, is the well-known Australian religion called race. You mightn't have heard of it. I only baptised at that name uh, yesterday. Uh, it stands for relaxed, Australian, idiosyncratic, I don't mean by that lunatic, I mean it's highly shaped by the individual, self-centred spirituality. Uh, it's just the general sort of interesting sort of spirituality that many Australians seek. And when I worked at the Great School Shore for many years, and if you have a boy, you've decided to send to a private school, can't get any better than Shore School, but if you have a girl, don't send her there. Um, <coughs> she can't go, sorry, it's a boys' school, in case you're new to Australia. But um, I, I used to do these baptism classes for old boys, from the school and we used to sit around in this room the husbands and the wives and it was, it was, they were lovely company they were great nights I enjoyed it the first Friday of, of every month and we had a number of lines of discussion that would happen almost every time I'd be saying something about Jesus and stuff like that and eventually one of these really lovely blokes would say well I think the really important thing is that we just keep the Ten Commandments and at that point there'd be a lot of head nodding and then I, I used to say for the first couple of years until it became just too embarrassing I would then say, look, would you like to name some of the Ten Commandments that are the most important thing, really, when all is said and done? And they'd say things like, well, love your neighbour. Well, I'm saying, well, that's a, that's a command, but it's not in the Ten Commandments. You got to, want to have another go? Sometimes between the 20 of them, they'd get maybe one or two. And after a while, I'd just leave the question out. It was just an embarrassing question. But these are the, ten, the Ten Commandments. So the really important thing in life is that you obey them. You've just got no idea what they are. But, you know we'll just be kind of nice guys and God will kind of like us because he'll be kind of like us and it's pretty cool and we'll just do the right thing and we should be okay. That's another do religion. I want to suggest to you that Islam is best understood as, as a do religion. It's, it's a little more complicated but it certainly falls into that category of ways that you relate to God. And the way that you can see that is even in the name itself, Islam. Islam, the, the word means, it's an active word, it means submission to the will of God. In, in classical Islam, you can't know God personally. He's too great for that. But you can know the will of God and that is what you should obey. You should submit to it. Islam is submission. Muslim is one who submits. That's what the words mean. And you submit to Sharia. Now, in our culture, Sharia has got a bad name for many, many people. We just think of the, the harsher edges of some of the civil code that we may or may not have heard of. But Sharia is the whole law of God. And it's got quite a beautiful meaning, apparently, in the original. It means the path that leads to water. So it's quite a lovely sense. And, and you submit to that path as revealed through the Quran and the life and example of the Prophet. 
So the very name itself is, is indicative of the active doing nature of it. On the top right hand of the page, you've got the five pillars of Islam. I'm sure many of you will be familiar. Whether you're a, a Sunni, a Shiite, a Sufi, this is a common amongst all the great branches of Islam from the earliest times on. The five pillars of Islam are the declaration of faith, I bear witness that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. By reciting this, one enters the Islamic community. The prayers, five times a day at the times that are set, which include also a fairly comprehensive washing of the hands, wrists, nose, mouth, ears, forearms and elbows. These, these things must be done. Charity. To use charity as a slightly charitable definition of this part of the five pillars because the money, uh, the 2.5% can be and should be spent, can be spent on the needy, can be spent on jihad, can be spent on the, corruption, on the uh, building of Islamic buildings. But it's giving money away from your substance. The fourth is fasting, particularly in the month of Ramadan. And the last is the Hajj, the pilgrimage, which you should do once in your life if it's possible. So that's the, uh, the five things, the, the five basic paths. Now, what took me most time in preparing today's talk was an attempt to be fair in giving some scattering of some of the verses from the Quran on what it says about how to be right with God. And I've only got five there, and I've, I've tried to be as fair as possible. Uh, so the first one you can see, and you can take this away and read them at your leisure, um, Surah 3, Obey Allah and the Messenger that you may obtain mercy. So the question is, how, how can I be right with God? Surah 3, Obey Allah and the Messenger that you may obtain mercy. Later on, or, so early on in the same surah, As to those who believe and work righteousness, Allah will pay them their reward, but Allah loves not those who do wrong. So you can see that it's quite clear. You are to believe, you are to make the confession, and it's the belief that is what it really is. It's that these are the things that are true about uh, God and the last and the greatest of the prophets, Muhammad is his messenger. Believe that and do the deeds of righteousness as spelt out in the remaining uh, great pillars of Islam. And some of them are mentioned, prayers, charity. They have their reward uh, from the Lord. On them they shall have no fear. And this word, as you can see there, Allah will pay them in three. They have their reward in Surah 2. This is the constant language that you find in the Quran. That you do a certain thing and God will reward you, God will pay you, you will obtain. You do a certain sort of activities and God throws in a liberal dash of mercy and it will go well with you. So in Surah 23, there's a, a picture which I was reading some of the surahs towards the end of the Quran this morning and yet this idea pops up a number of times the picture of the scales on Judgment Day. And if the scales are weighed heavily with good deeds, it will go well with you. And if the scales are only lightly laden with good deeds, uh, it will not go well with you. As uh, one of the ones I read, you, said, you will certainly be in the fires of hell. And it's a very clear system in terms of what you do. But at the same time, Islam rejoices in the reality of God's forgiveness. And the question that is that is also part of the understanding so Surah 5 says this, To those who believe and do deeds of righteousness hath Allah promised forgiveness and a great reward. And then the last verse there, which I picked because I think it was one of the most favourable I could find, O ye who believe, if ye fear Allah, he will grant you a criteria to judge between right and wrong, remove from you all evil that may afflict you and forgive you. For Allah is the Lord of grace unbounded. Now all of those are from the Yusuf Ali translation. I thought rather than pick and choose ones that I you know, found most favourable to me as a Christian, I thought let's pick one highly respected uh, translation of the Quran. 
Now, when you're translating from language A to B, you've got a number of choices to make. And the use of the word grace there, I think, is chosen quite deliberately. Grace is a huge word in real Christianity. And I think this is why Yusuf Ali chooses it. If you look at any collection of Qurans, the overwhelming majority will not use the word grace there. The word is, uh, um, is the sense of bountiful and having much with a tendency to be generous. It's that sense, more than grace in the New Testament Bible Jesus sense, of love for the unlovely and love for the undeserving. Because as you can see earlier in uh, Surah 3, the second one there, uh, and I didn't pick this one for that reason, but I was, just found it again and was, when I was pondering them uh, yesterday morning. Allah loveth not those who do wrong. Now this is, um, there's, there's a bit about love in the Quran, nowhere near as much as there is in the New Testament, just... Um, for example, there's 20 references in the whole of the Quran to God loving people. There are 27 references to love just in one chapter, in 1 John 4. It's a, the New Testament is a book of love in a way that the Quran is not. It's a book about justice and mercy and love gets a... But there are a number, quite, a, quite a number of statements about Allah does not love. He does not love those who do wrong. Allah does not love the unbeliever. Allah does not love the unrighteous. Allah does not love. Allah does not love. And who does Allah love according to the Quran and the Islamic writings I've been reading over the last few weeks? He loves the righteous. He loves those who love him. It's, it makes sense. So here's, here's the sense of it, that it's, it's a very strong push on the doing of the pillars of the, of the acts of righteousness. And if you do that, if you're that sort of person doing, 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 Allah will throw in forgiveness just not quite sure how much good or how much evil negates each other. Um, There's some interesting points which I'm going to leave out so we get time for questions. But you get the sense, I think, of the way in which uh, the Quran speaks, which is why in the Hadiths, the saying of the Prophet, sometimes you can find Hadiths or sayings of the Prophet in Bukhari, which is the most reputable uh, of, of the numerous collections of the sayings, where the apostle speaks, so the, the apostle of Allah, Muhammad, speaks quite confidently of being in paradise, but there are, there's another stream where he's quite anxious, which actually makes sense, doesn't it? If you believe that it's a question, as it were, qualifying for God's forgiveness. Uh, sometimes you will feel good if you've been going well, and sometimes you may feel more anxious. So here's uh, a very reliable saying from Bukhari, uh, and the first of the Hadiths. On that uh, the Prophet said, By Allah, though I am the Apostle of Allah, I, yet I do not know what Allah will do to me. So there Muhammad is saying, I'm just not sure how it will work out for me. And the second quote there is, is quite different, but it's just indicating the way in which Muhammad makes it crystal clear he doesn't save anybody. Uh, Muhammad simply doesn't speak of himself nor is spoken by those closest to him as a saviour. Sometimes Westerners speak like that of him. And the quote that was given here some weeks ago by Deere, I've been tracking that down desperately about the GK, uh, not GK Chesterton, uh, George Bernard Shaw allegedly saying he is the saviour of humanity. Uh, that quote is almost certainly spurious. The book that it comes from doesn't exist. Uh, and I, when I first heard it, I thought, that's a weird comment for George Bernard Shaw to say about Muhammad if he knows anything about Muhammad to use the Christian category of saviour. Um, so what you have here is a sense of the, uh, it's a religion of do. There are certain things that need to be done. Well, the second religion, uh, some of you will know this, it's the religion which is called the done religion. Very similar words, but quite different meaning. One is about things that you need to do. You need to do the right. Mercy, you'll be okay. The other is 
the done religion. And that is, if you look at a verse like John 3.16, which for thousands of years Christians have seen to be the verse, if you want to understand the whole message of the 66 books of the Bible, John 3.16 is as as good as it gets. Luther in 1520 said it's the Bible in miniature. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You can see the two halves, God, us. God loves, so he gives. What does he give? Not a prophet, but his son. And the context that you've got there at point four on the left-hand side is about the death, the being lifted up on the cross. That's the giving in the end. And the response is that whoever believes won't perish, but have eternal life. Let's have a look at this briefly, the, the done, the, why Christianity is spoken of as the done religion. Well, you can see it partly in the name. The names are helpful. Islam, submission. Christianity. It's focusing not on you and what you must do to submit, although Christians do submit happily to the Lordship of God in Christ. But it's about Christianity. It's about a person. It's fundamentally about him, not us. That's where the focus is. John 3.16 is very clear on that, isn't it? It's about God's love. Not for those who love him, but for the world, which in John's gospel normally means humankind in rebellion against God. The world prefers the darkness to the light. It will say two verses after this in John chapter 3. God loves the unworthy. God loves his enemies. Which is why Christians are called to love their enemies, to be like God. And he gives. He does the doing. We do the believing, which we'll come back to in a second. Now, if you have a look there in Matthew chapter 1 on the top left-hand side... The angel appears to Joseph. What a weird life it would have been to be Joseph. You know, has this gal, he's betrothed, which is like marriage, but but you're not living together. She's pregnant. He mightn't have been to personal development classes, but they know you don't get pregnant without having sex. Joseph knows he hasn't had sex with her. He's pretty ripped off. He's a righteous man. So this is a beautiful statement. He's a righteous man, Joseph. So he decides to divorce her quietly. Not drag her out for public shame, but a righteous man in the Bible's understanding, will, he will take action, but he won't inflict pain. But the angel comes and explains to him what's going on. And then he says this, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Not, was it Blue Ivy that poor Albionce was having trouble with, with the naming difficulties? Uh, no problem here. Jesus? Why Jesus? Right. The answer's there. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, the, the word Jesus means the same as Joshua, and it means saviour. God saves. The very name Jesus tells you what Christianity is about. It's a saving religion in a way that Islam is not. Now, that's, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, therefore, Islam is wrong. I'm simply saying, let's, let's not pretend they're saying the same thing when they're not. Um, Muhammad doesn't save. Islam is not put out there as a salvation religion. Salvation is a, a distinctly Jesus thing. How does he do it? Well, in the same gospel setting up the the distinctive Christian ritual, the one thing Christians have been doing in terms of ritual for a couple of thousand years, the bread and the wine. Jesus sets it up in Matthew 26. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How does Jesus save? Well, it's got something to do with his blood, according to Jesus. And the blood of Jesus has got something to do with your being forgiven or set free and released. So the second reference from Mark chapter 10, we touched on this last week. Jesus' preferred term for himself is son of man. He says this, Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You ask Jesus, why have you come? He says, I've come to give my life. I've come to lay down my life. I've come to die. Any, any summary of Jesus' life and purpose and intent that doesn't have centrally his, his, his death is an insult to Jesus because you're saying, well, let me tell you why. I mean, he thinks he came to die, but actually he came to teach or to be a fine ethical example. That's fine, so long as you don't pretend that you're treating him with respect. I think one of the most common things I see in Australia is in theory, in, in, in theory respect for Jesus, in principle respect, in practice, utter contempt. We don't care what he says about himself. We'll tell you about Jesus. Jesus says, I came to lay down my life. Now, many of you will know that in Surah 4, in the Quran, 157 to 158, Allah or Muhammad, whoever you ascribe the authorship to, says with crystal clarity that Jesus didn't die. He was not crucified, but Allah took him up to be with him in heaven. That Jesus Christ didn't die. And uh, both cannot be right. Either Muhammad is right and Jesus didn't die, or Jesus is right and he came to die. Islam makes sense of how Christianity started with this obsession with the cross by saying God did this work um, where he deceived the Romans and the Jews by making Judas look like Jesus. So G- Jesus has been taken up to the safety of heaven. Judas is made to look like Jesus and Judas is crucified. The problem, if you think that through, is actually if God simply wanted to protect his prophet, why not just take him up to heaven? That would have been a spectacular sign of that God was in charge. But it ends up with Christianity being, being built on a fundamental deception authored by who? By God. And yet Jesus in John 8 says, the devil is the liar and the father of lies. The idea that all the companions of Jesus, all the apostles, all the guys who were with him, Mary, the mother of Jesus, all were deceived and none of them got it right until 600 years later, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away, on the basis of a mere assertion, we discovered that he didn't die. I don't think there's a single historian who looks at that and takes that seriously. But one of them is right. Jesus says, I came to die. Moving right along. Well, then what's the response? What, what do we do? Well, look at John 6 down the bottom. It's a terrific verse. Very, I have often shared these verses with um, um, Jehovah's Witnesses who've got a whole list of things you have to do, as do Mormons, a whole list of things you have to do to be a good person and to secure and somehow or other deserve the mercy of God. These people came to Jesus and they said to him in John chapter 6, what must we do to do the works God requires? Uh, works. It's very clearly in the original a plural, hence the s. They're expecting a list, five pillars, eight paths, eight, you know, however many, they're expecting a list of things to do. That's what religions give you. That's what prophets give you, a list of things to do. What are the works God requires? A very good question to ask. Jesus' answer is shocking. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this. And he changes from the plural to the singular. He said, it's not works. There's one thing God requires of you. To believe in the one he sent. Seriously? That, that, that's what, that's it? To believe in the one he sent. Now, In the original language of the New Testament, there are two very helpful constructions in the sense of belief. One is to believe that something, hoti, believe that. That's, you affirm, you know, that there's 
This is what God is like. You believe that. It's an assertion. It's an intellectual conviction. That is not the way believing here is, is constructed or in almost anywhere in the New Testament. It's almost always believe ace or believe end, believe into. So I travelled by plane on the weekend. I believed in the plane. I believed that the plane could do it. That's why I was at uh, Dubbo Airport. Uh, but you're not believing in the New Testament, believing in or into until you jump in the plane where you, you entrust yourself to someone. What is the work God requires of us? It is to believe in the one he sent because his understanding is that he's done everything required. It's all done. Jesus' last statement in John's Gospel before he dies is, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's done. Receive. So, what you have there is a very clear difference. The the two religions are basically, respectfully, do-it-yourself kits. It's about getting what is fair. It's to do with putting in genuine effort. Uh, In the done religions, it's about a gift, it's about pure grace, love for the unlovely, and it's about depending or trusting or relying on someone else's work. These seem to be the two very clear differences in the way that they suggest you relate to God. Just before I finish and throw out my questions, I'd like to share with you a quote down the bottom of the page from this eminent man. We couldn't find a more cheerful picture of him, I'm afraid. I'm sure he was cheerful sometimes. Uh, a great uh, student of Islam who came across to the West and worked with some of our finest universities in order to sort of help in the education of the West about Islam. He writes this, the quotes on the bottom of the page, in huge writing. Ishmael al-Faruqi says this, Christianity feels that in the redeeming act of Jesus Christ, man's greatest battle, his war against the greatest evil, sin, has been won once and for all. That is why for a Christian, the very fact that he is a Christian, that is to say... The very fact that he recognises Jesus Christ as his Redeemer weighs heavily in the scales. It gives him the assurance that he is saved. Islam offers no immediate recompense to a convert. On the contrary, it tells him point blank that acceptance of Israel puts him only in a neutral zone and lays out before him the arduous road of Sharia or divine law, which he has yet to tread in order to lift himself out of the neutral zone by his own efforts. The very name of the faith, Islam, is an active verb, meaning to subject oneself in obedience to the divine commands, to carry them out. Therefore, while the Muslim comes away from his encounter with God, mainly conscious of the fact that the greatest task lies ahead in the test of ethical conduct, the Christian comes out of his encounter with God satisfied, relieved, that the greatest task lies behind him. So in answer to the question of Job, how can a mortal be made to be found righteous before God? Muhammad and Jesus answer with some similarity but ultimately with a stark difference. Muhammad gives you a course of action to to do with generosity and sincerity. Jesus says, it's been done. Receive it as a gift and grace. There'll be a thousand questions. Uh, Here's your chance to write them down. Thank you. I thought I spoke too fast at the beginning. Right. Uh, Some of the questions uh, here will be answered or will be addressed in the question next week when we look at the question of what does Jesus say and do and what does Muhammad say and do about how you should deal with people who oppose you, who annoy you, who hurt you, who insult you. Uh, Some of those questions will be picked up next week. Uh, Is there a place for works, good works, at all in the Christian life? Absolutely. If someone says they're a Christian and their life is beginning to overflow with acts of love. The fundamental good work, according to Jesus, is love. It's not fundamentally religious deeds. 
going to certain places, saying certain sorts of prayers with a certain sort of body position. That's just not the thing that Jesus is on about. But it is true of Jesus in a way that it is simply not true of the Quran. It is about love, love, love. Now, love needs some definition, uh, how, to, how to treat people well. Uh, this next question is related. It says this, If Jesus does it all, the done religion, then why would a Christian bother to obey? Um, that's what... Um, by the way, with these, I've, I've put a few answers from to last week onto the web, onto our Facebook page, and with some of these, I think I may need to do similarly. Sorry, because the, the economy must go on. Um, uh, a friend of mine who is here in this building, um, Alan, uh, was having a conversation with a, a, a Muslim man from the subcontinent, and they had a, lo- a series of conversations about Christianity. And Alan was explaining to him about grace the free, unmerited love of God to his enemies, which is the distinctive thing of Jesus, that God loves his enemies. He sends his son to die for his enemies. While we're sinners, Christ dies for us. And he's explaining this. And the two ways of relating to God, one is merit and a bit of mercy, and the other is pure, unadulterated mercy. And the man asked a question, uh, which is something like this. Well, then why, why would you obey God? Why, you know, If it's all gift and grace and through Jesus, why would you bother to obey um, because at least a significant part of why in, in the Quran Muhammad is told to keep a, an obedient and be faithful is for fear of what may happen if he disobeys at times and he's... Well, the Quran speaks as if he's wavering because he's given a very stern word from God uh, is in order to secure that day. And, and Alan explained, well, it, it's just when you get that God has loved you so much in spite of all that you are and have done, and that God has paid such a price, such a costly price to God to make it possible for you to be wonderfully forgiven. It just does something to your heart and changes your motivation. And the man apparently at this point teared up and said, of course. Of course that's how it should be. Of course you should obey God out of thankfulness and gratitude. And, and that's what you do if you know someone loves you. Unless you're a complete psychopath, <laughs> you respond with love meets love. Depth answers depth. So Christians' lives will be full of love, but not out of uh, a sense of obligation, I better do this, but fundamentally out of just gratitude. And that's how we live. So thank you for that question. Is is, uh, Christian and Islam are different? How do you know which is true? Well, I would think the... um, If I understand what my Muslim friends have said to me, you you pray, you read the Quran, and you'll get a, a sense that it's true. My problem with that is that I've spoken to all people from all sorts of different religions who give me that as the reason why they know that the Buddha is true or that Joseph Smith is the great prophet. I mean, it's, it's sincerely held, but it doesn't seem to me how I feel is a good test of the truth. What, and, but that's, that's what my Muslim friends have told me. Um, Jesus hangs it all in quite a different place. He hangs it all on the resurrection. So in Matthew 12 and John 2, you know, he basically people want proof. He says, uh, you know, I will be put to death, I will rise. That will be the proof. And the early Christians are very clear on this, that if Jesus hasn't been raised, we are of all men in the world most to be pitied. We are liars about God. Our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. There's a certain hard-headedness about Christianity that says, look at the evidence concerning the resurrection. Evidence not considered is normally not very compelling. But when you look at the evidence, uh, and 
And the best way to study is to read the Gospels and read the conclusion, those last few chapters. Three minutes. But it is good, I think, to look at the two, Jesus and Muhammad, and at least um, work out for yourself which one, you know, at least get to know them. As they really are, not as their propaganda sell them. But read Ibn Ishaq. Read the Gospels. What is the difference between Islam and Christianity's idea of heaven? Splits, this is unfair to both sides. Um, the, the picture of heaven in the Bible is to be with and seeing God. It's to be with Jesus. It's to be with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians do not believe that, that God has a companion, which is what our Islamic friends are concerned about. Uh, we, we're actually saying it's not that. We're saying that God, it, it's, it's, God is more complicated, that the one God, he is a they. It's not saying that there's God and Jesus. Right? Um, heaven is being with Jesus. It's being with the Father. It's, it's, being, it's the family reunion. Uh, in Islam, in, in, sort of the, in its classical strands, God is not in paradise. God is a, man simply cannot see God, ever. God is too great for that. But he will create a paradise. Uh, and it's, it's described in fairly... Um, physically pleasurable terms, whereas the essential thing in the Bible is God, to be with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, says Jesus, for they will see God. Would you recommend any books and tracts that a Muslim should read if they wanted to be saved? Yes. Um, And this is one of the areas where Christianity and Islam function differently. Read a gospel. Go back to the earliest sources. You may do as I did. When I read them, I I didn't believe they were God's word. But it was crystal clear they were the earliest sources we had about Jesus. Read them. I think there are some at the back there for free. Um, I think that's the best thing. Um, I don't want you to read a, a, a recent biography of Jesus written by someone. Go back to the source. That's the way. Read Ibn Ishaq. Read the Gospel of John. Uh, read the Gospel of Mark or Luke. That would be the thing to go. Jihad will touch on next week. Um, What about the 275 prophecies about the coming of Jesus? Are there any about Muhammad? If there, is a, there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah or king. And Messiah or Christ does not mean prophet. It means king. It's a different category completely. And Jesus never, ever once calls himself prophet. And the only people that call him a prophet are people who he disagrees with. Uh, It's a different category Jesus is working with. Christ is the King, the Son of Man, who will reign forever and ever. That's the the category. Are there prophecies about Muhammad? No, not in the Bible. My Islamic friends say there is. Jesus speaks, and I'm about to shut up because you've got to go to work. Jesus speaks in John um, 14, 15, and 16, and we looked at this a few months ago, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, There's there's no Bible scholar, whether they be Jewish, atheist, or or a Christian who, who doesn't know that that's talking about the coming Holy Spirit who arrives 40 days later in Pentecost when the Spirit comes. Um, some Muslims have, in the last few hundred years, uh, taken that to be about um, Muhammad. It really makes no sense. Uh, I've had extended discussion with my Islamic friends about this. It just doesn't make sense. Muhammad is not a spirit, he's a man. But this is the coming of a spirit. And what he says, Jesus says, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? He will glorify me. And I think Muhammad means to glorify Jesus, but he doesn't. He denies Jesus' central claim about himself that he's the son of God. 
He denies Jesus' reason for coming, which is his death, and therefore he denies the central proof Jesus gives, which is resurrection. So when my Islamic friends, and I'm about to finish, when my Islamic friends like Dia say that you know, they, they really like Jesus and they, they revere him and respect him, I say, look, it, it sounds to me like someone who knows Jesus a little more closely from the sources, like someone who says, look, we, I believe in Donald Bradman. I mightn't be Australian, but I think Donald Bradman's great. Uh, although you're just wrong on a few things. Um, he's actually a New Zealander and he plays netball and he's a woman. And so you think, well, I know you're saying you respect Donald Bradman, but you've so redefined him, all that's left is the name rather than the historical realities, which is why I think the argument is, go back to the sources. We have nothing to fear from the truth. Next week, how do we treat those who annoy us, as I may have done to you, um, according to Jesus and Muhammad? Thank you. Okay, I might just say a short prayer before we head back to work. Uh, Dear God in heaven, we pray that you'll help us to find out the truth about you so that we might enjoy life to the full in this world and in the world to come. Amen. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.